0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News.
1: Welcome to the Views Room, a weekly podcast from Reuters Breaking Views. I've got with me three of our editors to discuss our new ebook, Once in a Lifetime question mark: What will change after the COVID-19 pandemic and the great lockdown has passed? Fascinating conclusions that I think I've reached looking at the 44 stories that the team produced around the world over the past couple of, of, of months is just so how many of the, the mega trends that we've been writing about around the world, whether it's uh, the move towards more sustainable businesses, towards digitalization, towards stakeholder capitalism versus uh, just plain old shareholder capitalism, uh, automation, uh, all of these things seem to have been accelerated dramatically as a result of the great lockdown, whether it's because we're all working from home or we're, we're 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 no longer socializing the way we used to. It's also shown some of the loose ends in society. And I think one of the the most salient ones would be inequality of of income, inequality of opportunity. and And I thought, maybe, John, uh, Foley, our U.S. editor, could talk a little bit to start with your about your piece, your piece about inequality, which you wrote a, a couple of weeks ago. Um, certainly, what we're seeing play out now in many U.S. cities, well, just everywhere in the U.S. Um, you know, I think it's it's shown that this this crisis has exposed this these great differences between the haves and the have-nots, and now the have-nots are are making their presence known.
2: I think, that's, I think that's right, Rob. I, one of the things that um, has has come through uh, in light of this pandemic is that is that disease like this exacerbates existing trends. So we're seeing all kinds of things that we knew were there in the background just coming to the foreground and becoming even more uh, impossible to ignore. And one of those is inequality. And living in a city like New York, you see inequality every day. Um, but having densely packed areas, people living on top of each other, we've really been able to see the difference in how how the coronavirus has impacted different communities. And one of the things that we focused on quite early on was the fact that this was clearly a disease that was disproportionately harming poorer communities and communities of colour. And the statistics have borne that out um, in, a, in a tragic way. You're twice as likely to die of COVID-19 if you are black in New York or Chicago and many other cities than you are if you're white. And there's a there's a real financial angle there too. The financials make this even worse because of course those communities are more, um, they're over-indexed if you like, to some of the professions and um, and businesses that would be hardest hit like accommodation, like food services and so on, but the people who are most vulnerable in terms of a disruption to their income and, and a tying up that loose end, we're not seeing much sign that, that, that that's really being taken seriously yet. Um, in in DC, uh, or even at the state level, but that's going to be one of the big questions that we're, yeah, I think, we're I mean, all so going to be asking.
1: Piece of that, you, your piece looked at uh, Richard Beals wrote a piece that looked at labor. And, you know, it looked at the the critical workers. Um, you know, it, it, sort of rethinking what it means to be an essential or critical worker. And you see that, they, you know, whether it's healthcare practitioners or uh, ambulance drivers in attendance, but also, as you say, the people who deliver the food, the people who prepare the food for, for folks who can afford to have it, have it brought in. Um, you know, they are the frontline workers and they disproportionately suffered and are disproportionately of uh, you know, African-American or Latino.
2: I mean, it, there's, a, there's a glass half full way of thinking about this, which is that after this, we will look at some of these jobs that previously did not get particularly well remunerated and say, actually, these jobs are super important. We literally cannot eat without the folks who turn up to staff the supermarket. Uh, we need these delivery people. We need to be paying them more, teachers, you know, nurses, whatever. Um, that's the glass half full approach. The glass half empty approach is that we'll all just return to normal and, and people won't be prepared to make the sacrifices that they need to make to to, to reward those people for the risk that they're taking
1: right right i mean speaking of sacrifices sort of worth bringing in peter larson in in where are you right now peter london
0: in sunny london
1: oh good sunny well i mean you you wrote a piece that looked at um well one of the questions was, was how governments are going to pay for all of the uh i don't know if you call it rescue or uh unemployment insu- insurance all that kind of stuff that, that's gone through we've got alone in the U.S., Um, what is it, $2 in the European Union and the U.K. Um, Your your view is basically that to to create a more equitable future, is it where we're going to have to raise taxes, pretty much? Maybe you could explain you had a good feature in the book.
0: Yeah. um, So, I mean, obviously, it's pretty clear that that, uh, government borrowing is going up everywhere in the world. Um, And I think our colleague Swaha, you know, pointed out that, that, you know, 100 and... Uh, 150% of GDP debt to GDP is going to be the new 100% of debt to GDP. Everybody's everybody's debt's going to get cranked up a bit, um, and I don't think. I mean, clearly, I think governments are going to have to run deficits for quite a long time, particularly because people are going to be a bit more cautious as a result of this. They're going to save. Companies probably also are going to be a bit more cautious, um, but at some point there will be some attempt to to fix the, the government finances. Now, what happened in 2009? Was we had austerity. Basically, the view was that you didn't want to raise taxes. What you needed to do was to cut spending, and arguably that led to a very anemic recovery, and 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 arguably also led to uh, uh, some of the sort of the political outcomes that we saw in the U.S., the U.K., and and in the eurozone and so forth. So I think austerity will be really hard to do, particularly because again some of the things John was talking about, with with you know you, you it's going to be very hard to cut back on. Care workers, or teachers, or healthcare professionals, um, uh, after this crisis. So I think taxes go up, and actually, when you think about it, there are some tax ideas out that were already out there, um, but were sort of on the fringes uh, that will become more mainstream probably as a result of this. So if you think about wealth taxes, you know that was a kind of like wacky left-wing idea in the U.S. presidential debate. Um, you can see how maybe uh, uh, this crisis pushes that more to the fore and governments say, "Actually, okay, now it is time. We really need to do something about inequality. We're going to start taxing wealth. Um, Other ideas that are, again, that are already in the the works, like taxing tech companies, you know, the, the UK, France, other European countries have been talking for a while about trying to tax, grab more of the revenue of tech companies, which don't pay a lot of tax in those countries, even though they're pretty powerful. When you think about how dominant Amazon has been in the past few months of lockdown, continuing to deliver to people when shops were closed. Um, And so it's going to become even larger, and more profitable. It's going to be really quite tempting for politicians to say, companies like that are the ones that we need to go after.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things, uh, well, maybe Swaha, you wrote the piece, I think, quite early on saying that Was it 150% of GDPs? No, 200 is the new 150. Explain that one.
3: It's 150 is the new 100. Um, Basically, before when you use... (laughs) Pick a large number. Um, Before, you used to think that when a country was approaching uh, debt levels that were equivalent to its economic output, this was going to become a problem for investors. And that rulebook's just been ripped up. I mean, you look at Italy, which is probably going to end up with 160% of GDP, that may be a problem for investors. But somebody who's just gone over 100 won't be anymore, because you're I mean, you're on a playing field where there are so many people with 100 percent of uh, debt to GDP. I mean, who are you going to pick on as a bond vigilante? Um, And the other thing and going back to Peter's point on austerity, I I think there's a lot more breathing space, both on the debt levels and also on the need to clamp down via taxes or especially austerity, because the central banks are doing so much. If you have a central bank, as the UK Central Bank is doing, which is pretty much soaking up all the extra issuance, the guild yields have gone down despite all the extra borrowing that the UK government is doing and are in negative territory for the first time ever. The ECB is doing something similar. Jerome Powell at the Fed has ramped up more than any other central bank in the world his buying. This is right. going to give a lot of breathing space to companies, governments, and stuff to avoid imposing the sort of austerity Peter was talking about earlier that they really don't want to do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's exactly right. Um, I mean, the other thing we wrote a lot about was just the work. Well, I don't know what you call the lockdowns, the idea of the changed circumstances. And we had a story that came out of the States that said, basically declared the the death of the cinema. Um, That was a pretty interesting piece. And then we had a piece looking at, um, at sports that you were involved in Peter. What was, what's your prognosis for, um, for sport around the world as a result of this?
0: Well, as someone who's been definitely suffering from a a sort of acute uh, soccer or football, as we call it here, withdrawal over the past few months, um, uh, I I can say I'm very much looking forward to the uh, to the restart of the uh, of the English Premier League uh, in the middle of June. Um, But um, but obviously, I mean, you know, uh, aside from the fact that the, the kind of these clubs are all getting going again in terms of games. Well, it's, sport is clearly facing a very different world, whether it's it's football, soccer, or or basketball, or baseball, or ice hockey. Um, um, and the first real problem is that you know it's going to be really hard to see how you're ever going to fill stadiums with thousands and thousands of people ever again, or at least until there's a cure for COVID or some sort of vaccine or something. Um, and so. Uh, in the short term, at least, I think stadiums are going to be completely empty. That's the condition on which all these sports are restarting: uh, the, the National Hockey League in the US, uh, the Bundesliga in Germany. They're all starting with empty stadiums. Um, but even if they, when they get back to some sort of normality, you're going to have far fewer people in there, and that means lower ticket revenues. Um, you know, fewer sales of burgers and beers and the concession stands and all those kinds of other things. Um, And actually, what that probably does is it shifts the importance to television. So in some ways, it actually makes television more important. And some of these sports um, already make a majority of their income comes from the sale of TV rights. Um, So I think in the UK, if the the, the value of the TV rights for the Premier League goes up by 23 percent, that would cover the entire income that all the Premier League clubs get from selling tickets. So that's the sort of the order of
1: magnitude.
0: Um, so, the, of
1: course, so this hurts, and, and this sort of correlates with the piece that Jen Seba in New York wrote about how cable companies are going to be squeezed, right? Because they're basically going to have to pay up. I mean, the, the the football, you know, the NFL and others are going to basically require they're going to need to be paid more for the rights. They
0: are, and then and then the question really is, can they can they pass that on to the viewers? Now, and and then I think one of the big questions that we really don't know the answer to is. Is whether people are still going to have the same appetite for watching sports when they're being played in front of a less atmospheric crowd you know a lot of a lot of sports the the crowd participation is what creates the atmosphere that makes it good on television and so you know in that situation maybe actually you're less interested in watching a a football match uh uh, between 22 players in an empty stadium but you might be less bothered you you wouldn't notice the absence of crowd so much when you're watching formula one motor racing or golf, or even if you're watching esports, if you're watching people play video games, which is you know potentially some of these things have huge audiences. But over all in all, I think basically it seems like the um, uh, like TV broadcasting rights become more important.
1: Right, right. um What else? What else stuck out for you guys? I mean, John, what were some of the stories in the book that you, you uh, found most interesting? So
2: I, I, I love. Uh, there are some really like what Peter's talking about in terms of sports is plays to th- this theme of doing stuff in different ways there's lots of kind of cool stuff in the book that our colleagues have been writing about familiar things becoming unfamiliar whether that is more digital cash as Lisa Yook has written or there's that great there's a great article by Ed Cropley about um, lifts or sorry elevators and like these kind of smart elevators that office buildings will need to kind of get us all up and down to the floors that we work on but there are, there's this kind of dark under undercurrent under all of this of trends that we probably would rather did not become more pronounced as well, that I thought was interesting. So stuff like the rising concentration of big business. Um, there's a there's a, an article in the book about how, you know, antitrust laws will basically have to get weaker to let the big get bigger. Um, big tech becoming really too big to fail because one of the things that's happened in this pandemic is that we've relied and governments have relied on companies like Amazon and Twitter um, to keep us fed and employed and informed um, so, so there's that, and also the the, tr- the tracking, the idea that our phones are going to become more important in terms of tracking where we are, where we go, who we bump into. Um, so there's there's this kind of mixture of like, oh, that's delightful, something nice that makes my life more convenient, mixed with, oh, look at the prohibitively high cost of um, continuing with life nearly as normal after this pandemic. Right, and yeah,
1: properly re- referenced. I um, can't remember his name, Winston uh, from 1984. Exactly. <laughs> he Joker about the uh, about tracking um, peter what stood out for you apart from some of these we've already discussed
0: um well i i, I quite enjoyed the piece uh, we wrote about um, uh, what happens to uh, casual sex uh, as a result of the pandemic and the um sort of the future for uh for dating apps i mean you would you know you would sort of think instinctively that that all those kind of dating uh, apps uh, don't really serve as much of a purpose if it's hard for people to uh, get together physically. Um, but actually, um, there seems to be some suggestion that, you know, people are like, like all these things, another thing that's moving even more online than it was before. And so sort of, uh, you know, functions that allow people to kind of interact by video and whatever, um, might be, a, a, I would think an imperfect substitute, but, uh, but nonetheless, uh, uh, uh gaining in popularity.
1: Yeah, that story was quite popular, unsurprisingly. And it sort of looked at the idea of how match.com and Tinder, and all these guys are rushing to basically create zoom like functions or Microsoft Teams, you know, type functions kind of an interesting intersection there. Um, What about you, Swaha? What uh, what's tickled your fancy from the book?
3: Um, I really um, was interested in Amy Donnellan's piece, actually, on what will happen to office life afterwards and what happens to the companies who sell us their office space. Uh, I mean, obviously, everybody's rethinking how much do you actually need to be in a physical space and how much uh, how well does remote working uh, function? And her piece was actually the social distancing needs. It was a nice contrarian piece about how social distancing needs will actually be good news for some of these companies that uh our offices and the like I also really liked the um, the piece that uh, our colleagues it was a transatlantic co- collaboration between Anthony Curry and George Hay on the climate fight
1: mm. um,
3: and how you know the focus on the pandemic and the needs how that actually changes perhaps the the urgency with which we ch- fight climate change in fact and they they had a sort of they weren't too gloomy. As you say, we're tending to take a glass half full, empty, uh, half full rather than half empty approach. But um, they weren't too gloomy about that.
1: No, that's true. Um, I mean, my, for my for my part, I really liked uh, John Foley's your piece um, about Shalmaneser III, who I guess was an Assyrian king who seemed to have been the early adopter uh, of um, clasping digits or handshakes. Um, I thought that was interesting. Maybe just maybe you want to give us a little view about what your prognosis for the handshake. I I guess my point was that the handshake has been with us for
2: thousands of years, according to some of these Assyrian carvings. Um, But it suddenly seems a bit kind of icky in the era of um, crowdborne diseases and viruses that you may be able to transmit through. You know pressing the flesh so what could take its place but also what happens if we stop shaking hands because it turned out that there are various scholars around around um, the world who've been looking at what effect handshaking has on business deals in particular in, in Berkeley in California they'd worked out that if you do shake hands and then negotiate on say selling a house you both come out on a net basis better than if you don't shake hands you're, you're much less likely to try and get one over on the other person if you've shaken hands beforehand so if everyone stopped shaking hands basically our th- hypothesis was that the world gets less trusting which really is the last thing we need right now
1: yeah no exactly well okay that's good uh, i mean there's 44 articles for our Um, our listeners to dive into if they go to breakingviews.com and look for the What Will Change uh, tab. They'll see all of them there, or they'll also be able to download the PDF uh, once in a lifetime, question mark. And you can't miss it because it looks like the Remain in Light cover for the Talking Heads record from 19... 80. Um, all right. Well, that's our show for this week. I want to thank uh, John Swaha and Peter for joining us. Freddie Joyner in New York and Karen Kwok in London for helping to produce this. And our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your podcast fixes. Check us out every day at BreakNews.com. And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition of The Views Room. Auf Sen and stay healthy.